Uh, anyway, let's pray. We'll jump into the sermon. Uh, Father, uh, we do love you. We're so grateful for you. And um, we're so thankful that we can be your gathered church. Lord, that we, your people, can come together to lift our hands and our voices in worship. And we praise you. We just thank you for your, your providence, Father, your grace to us. Lord, would you help me right now speak words that are uh, in line and appropriate to your word, which you have given to us, that would exalt Jesus, which would exalt you as God and lift you high over all, that we would see you and adore you, that we'd fall on our faces in repentance, in submission, but that we would do so so confident that you are a God of mercy and forgiveness who loves us. Lord, we ask for your help this morning. Um, fill us with Christ. Illuminate your word. In Jesus' name, amen. And maybe if someone can go back and make sure the door is shut, uh, uh, coming into the gathering. Thanks, Jerry. Um, <clears throat> well, Psalm 32. Um, I was thinking about how to, to begin this message, and I, I thought of a story, an instance, uh, just to kind of pave the way for why we need to hear this psalm. And the story is this. Just the other day, I was coming home from meeting with somebody here at Christ City Church. And as I was walking home, I, I bumped into a friend of mine. And my friend has really been struggling. Uh, he's been going through a, a lot of difficulty, and, and he's got a, this intense anxiety that, that's just gripping him. He doesn't know Jesus yet. And I could, I could see by the way that his hands were shaking and by the, the way that he, that he looked at me with a, like a frightened look in his eye, like the, the panic in his eye that he just wasn't doing well. It was a really hard day. And so I asked him, I, I care about this friend. I said, hey, want, want to go for a walk? Can I, can I pray for you? Can we just talk? And we just talk and I'd love to pray for you if, if you'd let me. Um, and we did. We, we went out and, and as we were walking, something that my friend said to me really stood out to me. You see, my friend's been seeking to find flourishing, truly blessed life however he can. He's looking for healing, looking for something that will plug the hole, that will fix what's wrong. And he's seen uh, therapist after therapist and psychologist and physician after physician looking for an answer. But what he said to me was this, was so interesting. Is he was so frustrated that nothing seemed to be working. And he said... He said, I've been positive thinking the crap out of myself today, and it's not working. I'm trying. It's, it's just not working. And if you're not familiar with it, positive thinking or positive self-talk or, or self-compassion is this idea uh, that has some merit to it, that in order to overcome the negative inner voice that we have, that many of us have, I'll, I'll be the first to admit, I often have a pretty negative inner voice when I'm not living and trusting in the gospel. But the idea is that we need to speak positively to ourselves. You say things like, like I am strong. I am. I am determined and successful. I am a good and I am a worthwhile person. I have inner strength. I am a loving person. I can achieve anything that I want to. I am my peace. And the idea that this positive talk will overwhelm the negative voice and, and lead you into, into healing and flourishing. And to be sure, I want to be the first to say, to be sure this constant negative way of speaking to ourselves is not a healthy thing. It's not a good thing. But my question is this. As we come to this psalm, is self-positivity enough to lead us to the peace and the flourishing that we long for? Is it enough? It hasn't been for my friend. 
This morning we're going to look at Psalm 32 to see a path to blessing that is pretty radically countercultural. It's not what you hear uh, floating around on the streets of Vancouver. Because in Psalm 32, we'll see that blessing, flourishing, happiness, that wholeness that we long for, it starts not with saying, hey, I'm a good person. I'm enough. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. I'm a good person. It, it starts with admitting before God, I am a sinner. I am a sinner. I need to be forgiven by you. So our outline this morning is this. We're going to look to see that forgiveness is true blessing, true flourishing life in the psalm. Second, we're going to see four reasons why that's the case. And third, we're going to look at the power of steadfast love. So forgiveness is blessing, four reasons why, and the power of steadfast love. So look with our first point. Uh, Look at our first point with me, true blessing, and read verses 1 to 2 with me. And before you do, as I'm going to read these out loud, I want to invite you to open your heart before God. This is the Word of God. This is the God of the universe who loves us, who cares for us, who knows everything about us. And he's speaking what real, true flourishing and blessing is. I want to invite you to hear it from him. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. I think we can learn a lot from this passage by what it doesn't say. We're wondering, what is blessing? What does blessing look like? What does flourishing life look like? Well, it doesn't say, blessed is the one who has a big or a clean or a well-appointed home. Right? It doesn't say, blessed is the one who has a very large bank account and the retirement savings that they've always dreamed of. It doesn't say, blessed is the person who's managed to accumulate a large following on social media. It doesn't say, blessed is the person who has the power they've always wanted. It doesn't say, blessed is the person who has all the pleasure that they pursue and, and want to kind of fill up their life and satisfy themselves. It doesn't say, blessed is any of those things. Because the blessing that this psalm's talking about is something so much deeper than those things. And we see that from the context of this psalm, because this psalm is Psalm 32, which is in book one of the book of Psalms, uh, which is uh, understood by, by uh, students of, of the Old Testament, teachers of the Old Testament, to be the psalms that have to do with David's ascendancy. So he's not king yet over a unified Israel. And actually, the context is that during this period when he writes this psalm, his life was pretty horrible. There might have been a time a little later when he would have achieved like the rap superstar version of blessing with with, with all the money, with all the wealth or the the power and and the wise, but it wasn't right now. Now his life was horrible. He was on the run. King Saul, who was the king of uh, Israel at that time, his best friend's dad was out there trying to kill him in his jealousy. So therefore, the blessing David speaks of here, it it can't be something that's dependent on fame and fortune and pleasure and finance. That's not what it's talking about. The word for this blessing is actually the Hebrew word ashray. 
And what that word communicates is, is a flourishing, a wholeness of, of happiness in living life the right way, a deep blessing. David understands that, and, and he knows that that blessed life, the life that I long for, that it's found in this, Christ City, it's found in this. This is the blessing. Living in an intimate relationship with God. It's found in living with an intimate relationship with the God of the universe and all his goodness and all his love as he's with you, as you stand before him as somebody that is forgiven. Somebody who's seen for who you really are, who confesses your sins, and who's forgiven, brought into right relationship with him. And this blessing of forgiveness, it's true flourishing life because it's a lot deeper than the stuff that you own, which can be taken away from you at any moment. It's deeper than your health, deeper than the successes you might have and another day you might lose. It's a happiness that isn't dependent merely on the circumstances in your life that come and go. Look, I say to a lot of people uh, in, in the church, and you may have heard me say it before, but life is easy when you're winning. This is talking about a deeper blessing than the blessing of the momentary winds of life. It's a happiness that can weather the storms and the suffering. It's this happiness and blessedness that, God, I know you, and I'm your friend. I'm your child. I'm beloved by you. You are for me through thick and thin. In short, it's the blessing and the peace that we long for. The one that, that you feel inside looking to find just that thing you've been always seeking. It's to know this God in this way. Just like St. Augustine once said famously, our hearts are restless until they find the rest in thee, O Lord. This is the blessing, being forgiven, having that relationship. And you know what, Grace City? I think that you know it. I think you know like so many others, that, that pursuing the things that you so often pursue in your life to find that flourishing life, to find that blessing, that there's got to be something more than those things. Right? You've read all the accounts of the people who have achieved all of their dreams, gotten all of the things, and who still aren't satisfied. You've heard the quotes from people like Jim Carrey who once said this. Jim Carrey said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. Right? There must be something more. In Christ City, there is. In this psalm, we see it. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Living, forgiven, in right relationship with God. This is true blessing. See, these verses here, these first two verses introduced in this psalm, they're beautiful, I think. But if we're honest, they're not what we expect, right? If you imagine people getting a few drinks together here in Vancouver somewhere, maybe out on their patio, and as the evening draws on, uh, maybe they start to move to the, the big questions of life. Right? And they ask, hey, how can I live a really happy life? Like, what's the answer? I don't think you'll find this answer as the default answer in our city right? It's not the one that we immediately go to. Oh, you know what it is, man? Hey, I figured it out. You got to be forgiven by God. Like, like that's not the default understanding that we have. 
And yet there are profound reasons for its truth. We're going to see them now in our second point. We're going to look at four reasons why this is true blessing from the next four stanzas of the psalm. And the first reason that we see is in verses 3 to 4. And it's this. The reason is that simply asserting that we are actually good people, when in fact we're not. Asserting against God and his wisdom and his justice and his holiness, that no, I'm a good person, I'm a good person. It's not good, and it actually hurts us. Covering and hiding our sin hurts us. It's kind of a negative reason, but that's what we see in verses 3 to 4. I'll read it for you. It's for when I kept silent, silent about what? Silent about his, his sin. Is my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. And notice this, when, when David sinned, and, and by the way, sin is, is simply living in rebellion against God and his good purposes for us. It's turning away from him, trying to find flourishing life away from him, not living as he's called us to in his word, rejecting all of that. That's that sin, and it's a very big picture. It happens a ton of different ways, but this big picture rejection of, of God and his, his word. And when David sinned, he knew something that we often forget. He knew his sin wasn't primarily against the human beings that he harmed with his actions. So say he lied, or he stole, or he committed adultery. He hurt the person, Right? But he realized his sin wasn't only or merely or primarily against that person, but that his sin was primarily against God. All of our sin, Christ City, is primarily not against one another. It's against God. And as a result, he felt God's hand of conviction heavy upon him. Look at verse 4. David says, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. Our sin is always first and foremost against God. Why is that? Well, first of all, it's because he made us. We're his. We literally belong to him. We live in the world that he created for us to inhabit. The world's his. We're his. He's the creator over all. We exist here because of his grace and his mercy to us every day. He allows us to live in this world as a gift of his love and his grace, which he's given to us. In fact, the Apostle James even says that every good thing we experience here on earth is a gift from God. So think about that. This morning when you got up and your kid ran into your your bedroom and gave you a hug, it's a gift from God. This morning when your friend embraced you, it's a gift from God. This morning, when you walk through the lobby and you smelt the fragrance of the coffee, it's a gift from God. This morning, when you take a breath, take a breath with me. Let's do something weird. Go. That breath is a gift from God. Everything that we have here in this world is a gift from God. Look at what James says, James 1.17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. What do we do in our sin? We don't thank him. We don't worship him. We actually reject his authority in our lives. We say, I've got a better way, God. I'm going to do it my way. And in that process, what do we do? We bring harm to ourselves. We hurt the people around us. 
We hurt the created world that God has made. All of which, by the way, he loves. You're, you're sinning against a world and a people that he made that he loves. Our sin is against him. But rather than acknowledge our sin to him, and we're in that place, what do we do? We don't acknowledge it. We, we cover it up. David was the same way. He denied his own sin and he suffered for it. Look at verse 3 again. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. He got sick. He felt sick. I don't know if you felt this. I feel this. I felt it a lot in my life. That's maybe saying too much. But when I have tried to hide my sin, I've literally got sick from it. I feel the, the weight and, the, the, and God's hand of conviction upon me. I feel sick in my soul. I feel physically sick. I think that's what David's talking about. And I love the illustration that David uses. He talks about that sickness, about that heaviness, of it not feeling great, and just being awful in, in a covering of his sin. He says, it's like the heat of summer making him languish when he doesn't confess his sin. Right? He says, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up by the heat of summer. And Christ said, we don't need any illustrations for the heat of summer right now. Right? Just, just rewind a week and think back. I know some of you have uh, frozen your sheets and put uh, ice in your beds and gone to bed after taking a cold shower and then sitting there wet just so you wouldn't languish turning over and over and over again in the heaviness and the heat of the night. And the bottom line that David's illustrating is that hiding sin hurts us. Hiding sin hurts us. Maybe you've seen it. I, I, I remember when I was running this sermon, I was thinking, man, I... There's a, a picture of a situation in my mind that just stood out to me. And it was when, a few years ago, I was talking with somebody um, in, here in Vancouver who didn't yet know Jesus, and we were talking about the gospel. And we were talking about his life, and I was explaining like confession and forgiveness and what that looked like and, and the, the depths of how the gospel could apply to someone's life. And he started to get it. You could see in his eyes that he was getting it, that he was getting it. But I could also see that, that he didn't want to confess. And he even kind of admitted it to me. Not in so many words, but just like, I, just, I, I can't. I can't. I can't do it. And I've watched this person live under the weight of the burden of sin in their lives ever since then. I found out recently that, that his wife is leaving him with her son. I think a lot to do with a lot of this, this hidden sin. And I know that, that if he doesn't confess and come before the Lord, like the psalm talks about, he'll not only face consequences in this life, he'll face the judgment of a holy God when he gives an account for his life. Our sin hurts us. Our sin hurts us. See, hiding sin hurts us, but there's good news because there's a much better way. We get the negative testimony from David to show us the positive by contrast. In verses 5 to 6, we see the second reason for the blessing of forgiveness is that when we confess our sins, there's relief. The burden falls off our shoulders as we stand before God forgiven. Look at verses 5 and 6. I acknowledge my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Christ said, if you are a Christian here this morning, you know what that's like. You know the blessing of being forgiven by a holy God. 
Relief. It's relief. Relief is living in an open relationship with God. Nothing hidden. You don't need to hide anything because you're forgiven. You're accepted by him. And his forgiveness is profound. It's not like the forgiveness we're used to, to kind of mimicking and giving to one another here on earth. In Psalm 103, verse 12, he says, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Just contrast that with the way we usually think about forgiveness, or maybe the way that we feel it from one another. Because if you're like me, you probably are a little nervous to really let other people know what's going on in your life. Because you know that often their forgiveness is a forgiveness that's like, you know, it's kind of like you've just projected all of your, your stuff and your mess up on the screen back here. And everybody in, this, in the room's seen it. And maybe they say, yeah, yeah, we forgive you. But you know that, that when they look at you now, they have that in their mind. Right? And because they're sinful and they don't forgive like God forgives, sometimes they bring it back up. Sometimes they use it against you. Sometimes they're like, oh, yeah, kind of expected that was going to happen again. I mean, after all, I know all this stuff. But God doesn't forgive like that. He doesn't forgive and look at us and still think sinner and failure. As we're covered with the precious blood of Jesus who takes away the sin of the world, he looks at us and sees beloved son, friend, welcomed into my household. He doesn't forgive and then replay what you've done over and over in his mind. He doesn't forgive and then wait for you to screw up again, just thinking, I know what they're going to (laughs) do. They're going to do it again. That's not how God forgives. When God forgives, he forgives. He forgives. Removes your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west. As you are accepted and loved. As you really are with nothing to hide. Needing to hide nothing. You aren't sinner anymore. You're just beloved. But notice that this forgiveness, it comes through confession. There's no other way. It comes through confession. Look at verse 5. It says, I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. See, to be forgiven, David had to do a couple things. He had to stop lying about his sin. Right? Saying, hey, it's not there. No, it's not a big deal. That's, forget about it. Like, that's not really who I am, what's going on. He stopped lying about it. To be forgiven... He had to stop making excuses for it, right? We do that. How often have you done that? I, I do this all the time where it's just a little bit of sin and, I, you know, I kind of deserve it. God, you know, you've not been giving me enough. So I might as well go get some over here. He stopped making excuses for his sin. And he acknowledged it before God for what it really is. He agreed with God submitting wholeheartedly to his word. You are right. You are holy, God, and I will shut my mouth. See, to be forgiven, you must confess to God. But as you walk in open confession with God, Christ City, we need to stop hiding our sin before others as well. Look at verses 2 and 5. In verse 2, David said, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. And at first, in that, those first couple of verses, talking about forgiveness, it seems like that part about deceit's out of place, doesn't it? But it makes sense here. He's talking about the lying heart of a human being that wants to cover up their sin. Blessed is the one in whose spirit is no deceit. Blessed is the one 
Uh, well, and David says in verse 5, sorry, I did not cover my iniquity. Stop covering it. And see, I think we have a problem today. I think what we've done sometimes in the church is that we've taken the beautiful truth that God forgives our sin. The beautiful truth that I can approach God through Jesus Christ directly and be forgiven. And what we've done, I think, sometimes with that is then said, therefore, I can continue hiding my sin from everybody else. I can confess just to him, and I can hide it before everyone else, and it will be just fine. But that's not how confession works in the Bible. Just think about David's life. Think about David's confession. It's a little difficult to think of someone whose confession has been more public in all of human history than David's. Right? A little later after this psalm, you get to Psalm 51, which is his confession about his sin with Bathsheba, the way he murdered Uriah the Hittite. Right? And we've now been reading that psalm for 3,000 years. We use it probably monthly to guide us in our confession here at Christ City Church. His sin wasn't hidden. He didn't go out to the field one day like, ah, screwed up. I'm just going to pray to God. Okay, God, praise the, praise the Lord. Now I'm going to write a psalm about it but I'm going to put it in my back pocket and it's just for me. My private little psalm of confession to God. He wrote a public psalm. A public psalm while he was still living, while everybody knew what was going on. His confession was worked out in the community of God's people. That's what true confession must always be. Worked out together in the community of God's people. And look, it doesn't mean that you need to confess to everybody. It'd be weird if you're like, oh, I had a lustful thought. Dang it, I got to come up to the stage on Sunday. I got to tell everybody about it. Like, we don't have to do that, right? But we do need to grow in learning to confess to one another. James, the apostle James, writing a thousand years after David, he said in James 5 verse 17, he said, confess your sins to one another that you might be healed. Confess your sins to one another. Sounds a lot like David, actually, that you might be healed when David's bones are wasting away and he confesses and there's relief. But do it to one another that you can work out the confession and the repentance and the healing in your own life. So I'm going to do something a little risky. I'm, I'm going to jump into something that's a little bit overly personal as an illustration, okay? So fasten your seatbelts. Um, I hope this isn't too shocking. To date, the most powerful example of working out confession and forgiveness in my own life it happened, uh, I'm just trying to think, 11 years ago when I confessed my pornography use to my wife. And first, I confessed to the Lord, and I knew I was forgiven. I knew I was forgiven. But I also knew that my confession would be incomplete if I didn't confess to my wife whom I had hurt so, so horribly with my sin. I also knew experientially that, that just confessing to God didn't seem to be freeing me from my sin. You know, living and hiding it and living in that private way, it wasn't really growing me as a Christian. And Christ City, my testimony is this. It said, obeying the Bible, taking a step of faith here was something that God used to bless me, to grow me through my obedience and through my confession. It was a tool that God used to set me free from the sin that I hated but could never quite kick. It was a thing that caused me to see my sin for what it really was. 
right? Because I think so often we live our lives and we have the sin in our lives, but we don't really, we don't really do business with it rightly. We kind of downplay it. It's not that bad. It's just my little thing over here. But as I confessed to Heather, and as I saw her tears, saw her broken heart and heard the anger in her voice, I'm like, oh, my sin's serious. My sin's serious. It really is. It was a thing that, that God used, this confession, to open me to accountability that would push me out of my comfort zone. But there would be the things that God used to, to grow me. You see, when I talk to Heather, I'm, I'm opening myself up to this place, like speaking to my life. What should I do? She's like, here, I have an idea. Why don't you go and why don't you talk to the elders of our church? I was like, oh, okay. And at Christ City, it wasn't just any old elders. The elders were my dad, who's here today at the time, um, my father-in-law, uh, the, the fathers of several of my friends that I'd grown up with. It was very exposing, very, very vulnerable. But it was the thing that I think God used to start to change my heart, to grow me. You know what else it caused me to do, though, this confession? It caused me to know the sweetness of being forgiven by God a little bit more deeply. Because I confessed to Heather, and you know what she said to me through her tears? She says, Brent, Brent, I am angry and I am hurt, but God has forgiven me. God has forgiven me of my own greater sin against him. So how could I not forgive you? I forgive you. And in that moment, as Heather is in the body of Christ, I'm in the body of Christ, both in his church, I'm learning what forgiveness from God feels like as I'm forgiven by my wife. Look, I'd be lying if I told you that confessing sin is easy. And I'd be lying if I said, if you confess your sin, it's going to immediately get better. Like tomorrow, you're going to prosper. It's going to be amazing. Everything will go well. I don't think that's going to happen. But it is true flourishing. It is true blessing. And it is infinitely worth it. Because being forgiven, living vulnerably and openly in relationship both with God and others, it's awesome. As you live as someone forgiven, trusting in the blood of Jesus to cover your sin. So let me encourage you. Number one, don't hide your sin. Just don't do it. If you're hiding your sin, don't do it. Stop it. Confess it. Uh, First to God, know that you're forgiven by the merit of Jesus and his blood shed for you, period. But then also confess it to someone else. I'd love to to talk to you about it. You can confess it to me. You can talk to the elders here at the church, Jonathan or Doug. Um, You can talk to a, a mature Christian believer that knows the gospel. That's the key. Talk to somebody that knows the gospel. They can assure you of the forgiveness that you have with Jesus. Second, be willing to be held accountable as you confess your sin. To let others speak into your life. To be vulnerable. Say, okay, what, what do you think I should do? How can I start to work this out and, and make it right and, and, and grow and, and put this into death? And Christ City, when, when you um, are in this church and people are confessing their sins, you need to be somebody who's willing to hear a confession. So when you see someone coming to you, don't run from them. Don't run away. Listen. And if their sin is against you, let me encourage you, forgive them as God in Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 5, uh, 4.32. As God in Christ has forgiven you, forgive them. 
forgive them, trusting in Jesus. In that way, you'll be an example of what this forgiveness from God actually looks like tangibly in real time in his church. And if, it's, if the sin's not directly against you, um, and regardless of whether it is or isn't, speak the gospel to them. Don't let the moment go without assuring them that they are forgiven. Say, brother, sister, there is no condemnation for you. You are in Jesus. His blood is enough to cover your sin. He is enough for you. He loves you. He doesn't look at you and judge you. He loves you. You're forgiven. Go in peace, like we say every Sunday morning. Speak the gospel. So first we see the reasons why forgiveness is true blessing. We see that, that, uh, that hiding sin hurts us. Second, we see it's blessing because confessing it is true relief as we stand in forgiveness before God and openness before him and others. And third, it's blessing because when we live these open lives before God as those who are forgiven, you know what happens? God becomes our refuge. He is our refuge. Look at verses 6 to 7. David writes, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. Not hiding my sin, but having God as my hiding place. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I was reminded this past two weeks when I was on vacation driving through uh, the Hatzik Valley, the Hatzik Prairie, it's, it's kind of in behind mission, of uh, the huge flood that happened in 1948 in the Fraser Valley. And I was imagining walking or driving through that and just my, my vehicle being like 14 feet or whatever it was underwater, just all the waters over my head. And I thought of this, of this song, <laughs> you know, this, this idea of the rushing great waters not reaching you. And what David's talking about isn't a literal flood. What he's talking about is the hard things in life that will surely come. All the suffering, all the difficulty. And what he doesn't say is that confess your sins, be forgiven by God, and no floods will ever happen. He doesn't say that. He says confess your sins, be forgiven by God, and when the flood comes, you're not going to drown. You're not going to drown. God will protect you and preserve you and be for you a hiding place secure, able to weather the storms of life because you're forgiven. You're living in relationship with him. He's with you. He's with you. Even though bad things happen to us, God even uses those things we learn from Paul in Romans 8 verse 28. He uses those things for good. I love the way question one of the Heidelberg Catechism talks about this. It says, what's my only hope in life and in death? And talks about belonging body and soul, both in life and in death, to Jesus, my Savior. And then it goes on to say, such that there's literally nothing that can happen to me that's not working out my salvation for good with God. I'm preserved. I'm kept by him. He's my refuge. And the fourth reason is this. When we live open, deceit, free, forgiven lives, God is our instructor. Look at Romans, or not Romans, look at Psalm 32, verses 8 and 9. I will instruct you and teach you. Hear the word of the Lord, God speaking to you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. 
Christ said, hear the word of the Lord. God is offering to be your instructor. Do you want to know how to live? I want to know how to live. Here's a deep cut reference for you. I was thinking of that old audio slave song, you know, show me how to live. And when I, when I was working this room, maybe like three of you know what that is. Um, but, but like I, I do, I, I want to know, I want to know how to live. I want to know. And the reality is that I'll be the first one to confess to you that on my own, I don't. I just don't know how to live in this world. I can't figure it out. I'm not smart enough. My culture says one thing, but they change their mind like every 10 years or three years or two years, it seems like. So I don't know. Like, like how am I going to figure out how to live? God's offering to be our instructor. Do you know how much money people pay to go see Tony Robbins? Right? God's offering to be your life coach for free. And all you need to do is confess your sins. Come to him. Know his forgiveness. Submit to his words that I don't know how to live. Can you teach me? Be not like a horse or mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle. Christ said, don't be a stupid, stubborn mule. Just don't do it. Don't be, don't be the petulant kid. Like, I got a toddler, and I got a four-year-old. Right? Don't be the petulant kid screaming at your parents, I know the way to blessing! It's over here! I'm going to eat this gum off of the ground during COVID! It's going to be awesome! I know what will bless me. I will not listen to you and I'll freak out when you take the gum away. Like, like don't do that with God. Don't be the stubborn mule with God. Submit to him. Let him teach you. Humble yourself. Confess your sin. See, the blessed life we're looking for, it begins with us acknowledging that our own sin is the problem. But it's really hard to do. And I want to I acknowledge that maybe you're here this morning and you're just feeling like, look, Brent, I've tried. I've lived so long with this sin. To confess it now, that the consequences are going to be crazy. I don't know, Brent. Besides, Brent, I, I see what you're saying about God, but... When I think about confession, I wonder, is God just going to use it as an opportunity to punish me? I don't think I can trust him. So you won't confess, I think, because you're, you're struggled to trust God. But you know what can free you? What can free you is knowing the power of his steadfast love. It's the last point we want to look at this morning. The power of his steadfast love. Verse 10, we read, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Look, sin is going to feel good for a little while. I'm not going to be the pastor that tells you that doing any of those bad things that, that God is saying you shouldn't do, it's not going to be fun. Right? There is a pleasure in pursuing our own way for a little while. But many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. 
Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts the Lord. This steadfast love, when you read that phrase in the Bible, in the Old Testament, when you read kindness or steadfast love, it's usually the word chesed. This idea that God is a God who is committed to his people in love. From the beginning when he made the world until the end when all things are made new. It is his steadfast love and commitment to bless his people that is moving history forward. That is accomplishing redemption. That is bringing us to the place where we can be restored and made new in Jesus Christ. And Christ City, it's his steadfast love that proves we can trust him. Because it's his steadfast love that led him to the cross. The steadfast love of the Lord that took God Almighty, God Most High, right, living in perfect splendor and happiness and joy eternally, that caused him to become a human, to be born into our suffering and our filth and our sin, to be born so that the eternal God would be liable to get a cold and suffer a high fever overnight. To be tempted in every way as we are by sin. And yet to persevere in holiness. To suffer. To be betrayed by his closest friends. To be falsely accused and tortured. And then murdered. And why did he do it? Because of his steadfast love. Because he knew this was the only way to save his people. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can finally and perfectly cover my sin? What can pay the penalty of my transgression and sin against the holy God? Only Jesus dying in my place. His death counting for my death. His life counting for my life so I can be restored, forgiven in relationship with God. Look, he's committed to us in love. In Christ City, he speaks to you this morning. This same God, this chesed love that you struggle to trust, he looks at you and he says through his word, don't cover up your sin with empty self-talk. Let me cover it with the blood of my son. Don't hide from me in your sin. Find me to be your hiding place. And when he says these things, you can trust him. You can trust him because of the cross of Christ. You can trust him because he's at work in this place by his Holy Spirit, drawing us into life that is really life. The blessing that he is working to accomplish is a whole new creation. It's so much bigger and deeper than anything that you can imagine or try to achieve on your own rebellion against him. So won't you trust him? Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Christ said, in conclusion, you know what our response should be? Verse 11. Look at how the psalm ends. It's a command. Be glad in the Lord. 
Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice. Christ City, we have so much to be rejoicing over. God is for us. God forgives our sin. God loves us. Let's close now in worship and adoration, singing our hearts out for him and his goodness. I'm going to pray. Oh, Father, we just thank you so much. We thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your kindness. Thank you for your love. Would you soften our hearts, make us receptive to your word, to hear it, to obey it, to know your love. Show us your love with the power of your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.